morning, everyone. My name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And I want to invite you to grab your beverages and come on in and take your seats. Now, um, how many of you were able to enjoy a spring break? A little bit of more sunnier weather than we had uh, have here over the course of this weekend. Uh, I hope you had a great spring break. I know we did. Courtesy of my grandfather, we were all on a family reunion cruise with all 30 of my mom's extended family, and we are still speaking to all of them. At least I think we're still speaking to all of them, and they're speaking to us. We're, we're pretty confident of that. Uh, but last weekend, I uh, showed you a photo of a trip much uh, earlier than that uh, to the Philippines, which made some of you uncomfortable and squeamish about the shot of the balut. Uh, and that's good, because that's right along the lines of our topic today. We're going to talk about the notion of what makes us feel uncomfortable today in our text. So while we were away... Uh, in spring break, we had the opportunity to go snorkeling. And I have to be honest, I put on a brave face for the kids, but snorkeling brings up things from my childhood because I can remember as a child uh, going to visit my grandparents in Florida, going out on a boat with them on their boat way out, uh, I don't know where we were, and going and swimming around near a sandbar. And I was quite a far distance away from the boat as I was snorkeling. And all of a sudden, I see this grayish fin begin to come towards me in the water. And immediately, the theme song from Jaws begins to play in my head as a young child. And I'm trying to swim back to the boat, and I'm calculating the distance, and I know I'm not going to make it. And my young life flashes before my eyes. It's very quick. It doesn't, ha- it doesn't take too long. And uh, all of a sudden, the fin's coming closer and closer and closer. And I'm panicking more and more and more. And I'm sure all the people on the boat are laughing. And uh, all of a sudden, the, the owner of the fin pops its head up out of the water. And it's just this cute little dolphin with its little face. It's just as playful as anything. And it took me quite a long time to calm down and to return my heart, to return to my chest from my throat where it had become lodged. And I decided that day that being very, very, very far away from the boat when I was snorkeling made me feel uncomfortable. On a recent trip this last time, we went out to this place called Stingray City. And they took us to this place. And the guide says to me, oh, just jump in the water with this thing of squid in your hand And don't worry, the stingrays will come right up to you, and they'll just take it out of your hand. Uh, They're just as gentle as can be, these stingrays. They're like the butterflies of the sea. So against my better judgment, I jump into the water with the squid, and I'm hanging on to it as far out as I can from my body. And the stingrays do, in fact, begin to come towards me. And they come right up onto you, and I'm holding out this squid with my eyes kind of closed and hoping that they go away. And I'm thinking to myself the whole time, all right, Stingray, don't do to me what you did to that that guy in Australia, whatever the crocodile hunter, whatever happened there, I do not want that to happen to me. And if Stingrays can smell fear, they got a big whiff of mine that morning as I'm holding this squid out. And it just was as awkward as can be and as uncomfortable as I could make it while still managing to stay afloat. In the end, they actually really are quite gentle 
But uh, they still give me the heebie-jeebies a little bit. <laughs> but take the question out of the water and put it onto dry land for a minute in the day-to-day places where we find ourselves, not in exotic locations or anything like that. What is it that makes you feel uncomfortable in day-to-day life? If you sit with the question for a little bit, it, it, kind of, it can become a little bit unsettling the more you think about it. Maybe for you, you uh, uncomfortable and awkward feelings well up when you're in a socially awkward situation. When somebody maybe says something in a group setting that's totally inappropriate. Maybe they violate some kind of social convention or taboo. We were in a gallery one time, and a person went right up and just started putting their hand all over the picture. And everybody in the gallery just thought, did we all just see that? What should we do? And there was this really awkward moment where the person just kind of kept going from painting to painting. We're like, should we call security? Should we? We're not really sure. It was just very, very awkward because they'd kind of broken some kind of social taboo. Maybe... Um, It makes you awkward when people disobey signs that are very clearly posted. Meg, my wife, is she's a very she's very she's a good rule follower. She would survive very well in a totalitarian state. And so she always is conscious of the signs everywhere and is reminding people. So we're up at the hospital visiting this person, and signs are very clearly posted at the hospital. This is a scent-free zone, you know, limit the perfume you bring in. And this woman walks in, and she's just doused in perfume. And Meg's like, can she not read the sign? This is really awkward. Someone should say something to her. Maybe you get very uncomfortable or awkward when you're over at a friend's house with your children, and your children begin to round, and your friend has placed everything, all of their valuables, at kid level for some odd and inexplicable reason. And suddenly you just begin to feel awkward and nervous, like, I know my kids are going to knock one of those things over, and this is going to be a bad situation. Maybe going to a very fancy party where you have to make awkward chit-chat with people that you don't know does it for you. Maybe for you, you feel awkward and uncomfortable when you're approached on the street by a person asking for money. Maybe being in church is uncomfortable for you. I don't know what makes you feel uncomfortable, but as human beings, we often feel uncomfortable when we're outside of our comfort zone or when we're put in situations that defy the norms or the expectations that we think should be happening. If you push us too far as human beings, generally we feel uncomfortable. We feel awkward. And often our response is we either hope that the whole thing just goes away and that the person maybe goes away, or we kind of will push into that place where we respond in some way to feeling uncomfortable. But we don't generally like to keep in that place, to stay in that place where we feel uncomfortable for long periods of time, do we? And in the New Testament, in the book of Luke, in Luke chapter 7, we see what may have been one of the most awkward interactions that Jesus had while he lived and walked on the earth some 2,000 years ago. So I want you to use your imagination with me and try and kind of get at some of the awkwardness that happens in this text as we try and draw out those socially uncomfortable moments. And as we look at this passage We're going to explore our own places of discomfort and see how Jesus calls each and every one of us to push past those in some ways and fall to grace. So let's pray as we begin, and we'll look into the Bible in in Luke chapter 7. 
So God, we're grateful uh, for this morning. We're grateful for uh, another day that you have given to us. And we're grateful for uh, the way in which you've made us. And we're thankful for this place and for this time that we can look into your word. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach each and every one of us in this place this morning. Open our hearts and our ears to hear from you. And we pray that you would speak to each and every person here this morning in a unique way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to be reading uh, from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. And as I do, a few different artistic interpretations of the scene are going to come up on the side screens. And the text will come up uh, when I get to verse 44. So get comfortable either with your Bible or if you have a Bible uh, app on your phone like YouVersion. uh, Or if you just want to close your eyes and imagine the awkwardness of this scene in Luke chapter 7. Uh, Starting in verse 36, we'll jump in. So one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So Jesus went to his home and sat down to eat. When a certain immoral woman from the city heard that Jesus was eating there, she brought a beautiful alabaster jar filled with very expensive perfume. Then she knelt behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. And her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them off with her hair. Then she kept kissing his feet and putting this perfume on them. Then the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, and he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner, Then Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, he said to the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. Go ahead, teacher, Simon replied. Then Jesus told him a story. A man loaned money to two people, 500 pieces of silver to one, 50 pieces to the other, but neither of them could repay him, so he kindly forgave them both, canceling their debts. Who do you suppose loved him more after that? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's right, said Jesus. Verse 44. Then he turned to the woman, but he said to Simon, Look at this woman kneeling here. When I entered your home, You didn't offer me water to wash the dust from my feet, but she's washed them with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a kiss, customary in the ancient world and even around the Mediterranean today. But from the time I first came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You neglected the courtesy of olive oil to anoint my head, but she has anointed my feet with rare perfume. I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who's forgiven little shows only a little love. Then Jesus turned to the woman and said, your sins are forgiven. And the men at the table said among themselves, who is this man that he goes around forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
This whole situation is awkward on so many levels. The questions that it ought to stir up in our mind are many. But let's start back at the beginning of the encounter and think about the awkwardness that this would create. First of all, this woman busts in on a dinner party in a private home to which she is not invited. Awkward. (laughs) And it's intriguing to me that she, through the whole story, she actually remains unnamed. And actually, the specifics of her sin are also unnamed. Many historians and commentators make a strong case that she was the town harlot. She was a well-known prostitute. But intriguingly, in Luke's account, all we know of her is that her reputation preceded her. So she's well-known, and she busts into this private dinner party. And not only does she come right in to Simon the Pharisee's home. She comes right up to the head table to the honored guest, Jesus, and she falls down at his feet and she begins to touch him like a lot, like on his feet. Now, I don't know about you. I don't like people touching my feet. I, I don't know. Ladies, you go for pedicures and manicures, and so people, t- you might be a little more accustomed to people touching your feet. I don't like people touching my feet. I just find it very awkward and weird. But this woman, she disregards all common conventions of her day. She falls down at Jesus' feet, and she openly begins to weep. Not just a few tears, because that's not going to wet anyone's feet sufficiently. No, she's weeping enough that it seriously gets Jesus' feet wet. Awkward. We don't know why she's weeping here. It doesn't say, are these tears of joy? It doesn't give us any clues about this. But if someone comes in to my house, to a dinner party to whom they are not invited, begins to approach one of the guests at my table and begins to cry on their feet and start mopping things up with their hair, I'm going to intervene in some way. But Simon actually doesn't do that. It just kind of keeps happening for whatever odd reason. Now remember, It's kind of gross, too, because in the ancient world, they walked everywhere, and we're not talking with hush puppies and new balance, right? This is like old-time sandals, and your feet just get gross and dirty and calloused and disgusting, and whatever kind of was walking in the street just before you, animal or otherwise, it's on your feet now. And so your feet are probably in horrible shape. And Jesus says later on that his feet were unwashed, So it's it's not a pretty picture, like the stained glass image makes it out to be very kind of contained. It's gross. It's awkward. It's just wrong on so many levels. And then the woman, 
has brought with her something that's really out of place, too. Very, very, very expensive perfume. This is not your run-of-the-mill kind of body shop foot cream stuff that she's brought with her. The stuff that she's brought costs over a full year's salary per pound. And in the ancient world, this kind of stuff was reserved for very, very special occasions. In Exodus 30, this is the stuff that they inaugurate the temple with. They initiate someone as a new high priest with this stuff. Very important civic feasts get this stuff, like kind of presidential inauguration type events. Sometimes the burial of very, very important people is marked with this kind of stuff. You do not bring this stuff to dinner parties. And on top of this, we kind of have to ask the question, where did she get the financial resources to afford this kind of stuff? This is very expensive. And remember, if she's a prostitute, she's been in a very, very brisk business to be able to come with that kind of coin to buy that kind of a full year's salary and bring it to the table. The whole thing is just very awkward and inappropriate at so many levels. And I love Simon's reaction. Again, he doesn't jump in. His first reaction is to blame Jesus. He thinks to himself, this whole awkward situation, this is Jesus' fault. He's he's letting this, this prostitute touch him. And he would know, he should know, that this woman is a sinner. And if he knew that, because if he was a prophet like he claimed to be, he would know that kind of stuff. And he would have stopped it. He would have never let it get this awkward and out of control. But you see, Simon kind of lets us in on the secret that just by the way he's thinking, he doesn't actually believe that Jesus is a prophet. If he did, this event certainly shattered that notion for him. Because to every religious person in the first century world, separation from sin was the mark of holiness. You had to maintain a purity of testimony by not getting involved or anywhere close to those kind of people. Their motto came from Isaiah 65 verse 5. Isaiah says they would walk around saying things like, don't get too close to me or you will defile me. I am holier than you. Jesus, though, because he's God, knows what Simon is thinking, and Jesus goes to the heart of the issue. And he does it in an interesting way. He does it by telling a story. The story of two people who are way over their head in debt. The first one owes almost two months' wages, and the other one owes ten times that amount, over a year and a half worth of salary. So this is quite a high-risk loan for the money lender to have engaged in in the first place. And Jesus is very careful to point out that in both of these situations, the debtors have literally nothing to pay. They have no bargaining position whatsoever. 
They have no equity left to draw from if they ever had any to extend the loan in any way, shape, or form. They're done. But in Jesus' story, in a scandalous act of grace, the creditor kindly forgives them both. Can you imagine a car dealer wiping out an entire obligation on a vehicle? Now, don't worry about it. Just drive off the lot. Not a big deal. Can you imagine your bank calling you up and saying, you know what? We just uh, reported our yearly earnings. We made $3.3 billion last year, and we just think we're going to pay it forward, so we'll just take care of the rest of your mortgage for you. Can you imagine MasterCard calling you up and saying, uh, hey, listen, we've just been going through your account. We know you way overspent last year uh, and are carrying like a really significant balance. Don't sweat it. All is forgiven. It's hard to imagine because it just doesn't happen. Except when Jesus gets involved in your story and invites you to fall not from grace, but fall to grace. Because Jesus isn't finished with his story. The next red letters are the really shocking ones. And these are the ones that cause the stir at the dinner table. Jesus turns and he looks a woman in the eyes. But he's talking to Simon. And he paints a picture of contrast. Simon, you didn't even offer me a common courtesy. Your lowest uh, entry point couldn't have even instructed someone here in your house to come. And as was customary for anyone who came into your house in the ancient world, just to have something available to them to wash their feet and to dry them off. You didn't even offer that to me when I came into your house. You didn't welcome me with a traditional greeting of any kind. You didn't bring out even the least expensive thing that you would do for a guest, and that is just olive oil. Everybody had olive oil in their house. Just the least expensive to kind of just freshen up a little bit when I came into your house. Everybody did that in the ancient world. Simon failed on all three counts to offer any kind of hospitality to Jesus. Jesus says, you invite me over for dinner, but where's the love? Luke 7, 47, he says, So I tell you, Simon, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. A person who's forgiven little loves little. And Jesus declares, Woman, your sins are forgiven. See, in Luke's gospel, in this section of Luke's gospel, all of the stories are designed around contrasts. The whole of chapter 7 is filled with stories about the contrast between the presence of faith and the absence of faith. And in this story, it pushes the envelope and pushes our sensibilities a little bit because Jesus does some scandalous things. He declares with authority that this woman's sins are forgiven. 
And we need to ask a few questions here because in a quick read through, it kind of seems like Jesus is simply rewarding her for a kind gesture that she's made to him. And if you read too fast, you got to think, is Jesus actually saying that by what she did, that he's declaring then that her sins are forgiven? Is Jesus saying in this text that she's been saved by what she's done? Can you be saved by your works? Is he in any way suggesting or modeling that her works or the things she's done saved her? Well, here I think it's important for us to put Jesus' first and his last words to her in uh, link them together. His last statement is clear. Woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, throughout the Bible, there, there is a link that is made between our faith and our actions. But the ordering of those two things is fundamental and critical to getting it right. If we think in any way that our actions produce or somehow motivate or stir up or conjure up faith in our lives, we are mistaken. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3. He says, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith and your labors prompted by love. Anything you or I do in our lives is a response. Anything we do for God ought to rightly flow out of the soil of faith and love in our hearts and our lives. The scriptures are clear. We even have a capacity to love because God first loved us and he demonstrated his love towards us first. We don't change our behavior first And then somehow God notices what a great job we're doing and then rewards us. Works come out of our faith that is prompted by the love of God. And so it is here with this woman. It's important to be clear that what Jesus is rewarding is Jesus rewarding her bold faith, which she demonstrates or lives out by her actions, not vice versa. In other words, the presence of real and genuine love that has transformed her life call out a change in her behavior and in our behavior. If I think back in my life, almost 19 years ago, uh, Meg and I first met. And when we first met, and over the course of our early part of our relationship, and as I began to kind of fall in love with her, my behavior towards Meg started to change. I wanted to start to hang out with her more. The tone and depth and focus of our conversations went in different directions. You don't tend to behave your way into genuine love. A genuine love for someone actually then begins to exert an influence over your behavior patterns. You choose to begin to love someone or something, and then your affections begin to flow out of that place. 
Similarly, love is the motivator for anything that you do for God in your life. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 puts this in the right order. It says this way, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast or get the wrong idea. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God preferred in advance for us to walk in them. Faith precedes deeds or our works. I don't know if you remember it, but I grew up with a little song that was designed to keep us as children on the straight and narrow. See if you remember this with me. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. And there were other verses, right, about hands, careful, feet, careful where you go. Uh, And as true as that song potentially might be, I want to turn it on its head a little bit this morning and use those lines to help us draw a little bit more application for our own lives out of Luke chapter 7. Because the first thing that strikes me about this story is actually how careful Jesus was about where his feet took them. Jesus is often accused of hanging out with sinners. And this text is often appealed to push people outside of their comfort zones, hang out with less savory people in your town. It's often paired with James chapter 1 to remind people not to be fearful of associating with those of low esteem, and it's true. But it also strikes me that Jesus' feet took him also to Simon's house. Jesus chose to engage in a relationship with a self-righteous, hypocritical member of the upper class of the religious and political elite of his day. Jesus is just as concerned for Simon's soul as he is for the condition of the woman. Here in our city, as a community, we work in partnership and have a partnership with the Gateway of Hope. We also have a partnership with the Township of Langley. Our volunteers might find themselves in the morning on Fridays hanging out, handing out volunteers and volunteering at the food bank in the morning and having lunch with business leaders and local politicians in our community that afternoon. Why the spectrum? Well, because we believe that all segments of our culture need to know and experience the forgiveness of sins and the mercy of Jesus. So we think about reaching up and reaching down. But here's where sometimes I think our little feet get stuck. Because sometimes our little feet don't take us to these places, either up or down. Sometimes part of the ethos of suburbia 
is that it allows us to hide our needs and our brokenness behind resources so that everything looks pretty good on the outside and we can generally do a decent job of masking what's going on in here and in here. Even more concerning to me is sometimes our feet don't actually take us that far away from home. Our feet are often pretty careful to walk in and around the pre-existing comfort zones that we have. And here's where Jesus' actions and his challenges to Simon can cut pretty deep because they challenge Simon's preoccupation with separation as a strategy for holiness. By the radical nature of Jesus' actions, Jesus moves right into Simon's life and reminds him and reminds you and me that, strictly speaking, separation is an inadequate model of holiness. Just moving away from things that are bad, we've talked about this before, is insufficient. Just moving to the suburbs and hoping that your kids will turn out okay is not good enough. Just trying to steer clear of sin and avoid the wrong kinds of people isn't what Jesus modeled for us. Our feet need to take us to places that are outside of our comfort zone. Let me nudge you a little bit further here. Beware of letting your feet get stuck in the sub culture. Especially in a place like the Fraser Valley, there is a whole parallel universe that you could spend your entire life and existence in. You could send your kids to Christian schools, listen only to Christian radio stations, enroll only in Christian sports leagues, read only Christian novels, and the list goes on and on and on. And I'm not saying that any of those things in and of themselves are bad. But it's the motivation behind them that you or I need to think about. Is your motivation for doing that so that your kids will never have to hear a swear word or be exposed to those kinds of people? Not to burst your bubble, I went to a Christian school all through my educational environment And I was one of those kinds of people that you didn't want your kids hanging around. Our school was known as one of the worst schools in the district. So, you know, just just putting you on notice that if your strategy is if we can just inculcate ourselves in the subculture and protect ourselves as a model of separation and holiness, it doesn't work. If that's our strategy, our feet are not taking us to the same places where Jesus' feet took him. We've missed the mark. And you know what? There's groups that have been particularly um, guilty of this in the past, and Mennonites are one of them. It's something that in our history and our experience, we have taken and designed separation strategies as models for holy living for about 150 years, and it took until about the late 1950s to figure out that it wasn't working that great. So separation as a model for holy living is not what is going to work. 
All right, I will hop down off that soapbox for a minute, and we will keep going. Not only do I want to grow in my awareness of where my feet are going or not going, but I want to be aware of what my little eyes are seeing or not seeing. This is something I'm learning a lot about these days. I'm finding that learning to see other people through the eyes of grace is a challenging proposition because sometimes there are a lot of things that get in the way. If I was sitting at a table with Jesus, I'm not convinced that I would have responded very graciously because I have a wide variety of responses that I tend to lead with when I encounter someone, particularly if, as it says in the text, this woman had a very strong reputation that preceded her. I've been challenged in my life recently with the question, can I see past the actions, past the exterior, past sometimes the very pious exterior, past the reputation that someone walks into a room with, past the differences that they might have with me, and can I actually see the person behind what I'm looking at? I'm still growing in this. And I suspect you might be as well. And it's one of the things I'm going to be praying about when we move to our response time in a few minutes is because I need to grow in the way that I see people. Too often I am misled by just looking at the external appearances, the reputation, the social status, what other things that distract and, and are just a smokescreen, and I'm not looking past them to see the person behind that. Jesus was able to. I need my little eyes to grow in that. The final concern that I hear from people is that when we get into these places, is that we are elevating grace if we look past all of that stuff and we are deconsequentializing or minimizing sin. Be careful, little mouth, what you say. If we look to Jesus as our example with this woman, Jesus didn't brush past her sins. Her sins, he says, and they are many, Jesus says. Her sins are forgiven her. The whole point that Jesus is making in his story about the debtors is that neither of them could act on their own to get out of their position of indebtedness. Yes, sure, one might have been a little in debt and the other was a lot in debt, but they were both still in debt and they were both still helpless to do anything about it. And since they were both still invited to fall to grace, Jesus makes the point of his story quite clear that minimal forgiveness equals minimal gratitude. I wonder if some of us who maybe were wonderfully privileged in some ways to have experienced salvation at a young age are in some ways at a profound disadvantage when it comes to expressing kingdom gratitude. 
Sometimes we think, and we can trick ourselves into thinking, well, you know, I was a pretty good person before uh, I came to Jesus, so God's actually pretty lucky to have me on his team because he didn't have to do a lot of cleanup work like some of those other people. But if MasterCard calls and gives me a $30 credit on my bill, I would be grateful, but I wouldn't give my life to them. Now, if they paid off your $300,000 mortgage, unprompted, no strings attached, there's a slightly different attitude that you might bring to the table. But how God's grace works is that he doesn't ignore our sins or the fact that our sins have created an environment in which we are indebted. He simply notes that each and every one of us owed a debt that we could not pay. And he decided, in his mercy, that he was going to pay it himself by sending his own son to cover the cross, costs on the cross. And that's what we celebrate at Easter and Good Friday and the resurrection. I'm going to ask the team to come and we're going to move into a time of communion where we celebrate and mark and declare that forgiveness that was purchased for you and me. On Thursday, I was on Twitter, and I saw a great tweet by author Rachel Held Evans. She simply said this, It's okay to let grace get a little out of control. That's the whole point. In many ways, that's what Jesus is driving at in this story and in this encounter And he's driving at that with your life and with mine. That no matter where you find yourself today, you might need to let grace get a little out of control in your life. And in our community, that might just be the whole point. That Jesus invites each of us to fall to his grace. I'm going to pray together for us. The team's going to come and serve us a communion, and the prayer team's going to be uh, available, Ralph and Dave and Jody, for you. Let's stand together, and I'm going to pray. God, we are grateful for grace. I'm grateful for your grace again this morning. Your grace, it, may, it does make things awkward. Because we, f- we feel like in some way we need to respond. Because we're indebted. God, I pray for each person here in this place today. I pray firstly for each person who has never actually responded to your gracious offer to have their debts forgiven and wiped clean, to live in right standing and in a zero balance and in an amazing and freeing adventure with you. If that's you and you're here today, the response that God requires of you is faith, where you would say, I agree with that statement, God, that you are the the one who has the capacity to pay my debt. 
And so you would respond simply by saying, Jesus, I acknowledge that. The scripture says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so if you've never made that declaration here in this place, I want you to pray that. Just as we sing some of these songs, the words to these songs will lead you in the right direction. Your your heart will be warmed by the Holy Spirit towards what God's doing in your life. I want you to come and pray with one of our prayer team and they'd be happy to lead you through that exercise this morning. Maybe this morning you're here and you're wrestling with this notion and you're saying, you know, I just don't feel in any way like I'm worthy of what God did for me. It's all right to receive God's grace. And a lot of us have a difficult time with that. And so I'd encourage you, if that's you, just demonstrate that with a physical posture. Just open your hands as we sing these songs and let God continue to speak to you about his desire for you in grace and to pour his grace into your lives. Maybe you've come today with some significant needs, something you want to process with somebody. And I just encourage you, our prayer teams will be available on the far side uh, just before you go to the communion table. And we just encourage you to spend time with them praying. They would love to pray for and with you. Maybe you want to celebrate something that God's doing in your life. Maybe you're saying, I just need more faith to believe that God's grace is real and could do something significant in my life. As we come to the communion table this morning, friends, I want us to remember that communion does not happen because any of us deserve it. None of us deserve it. But if you've come to a place of acknowledging your dependence on Jesus and you're in right relationship with him, you're invited. And so we'd invite you to just, whenever you feel ready, to make your way up to the table. And the cup that represents Jesus' blood that was shed for you, the bread represents his body that was broken in mercy for you. You can just take those. You can partake there at the table, or you can make your way back to your seat. You can go and pray with one of the prayer team members. We're just going to sing three or four songs here that will give you that time to respond in whatever way that you would choose. So Dustin and the team are going to lead us in songs of reflection, songs of declaration and remembrance. I just encourage you to wrestle with and to live in that place again of being receptive to the grace that Jesus offers you.